Today we continue our five-part sermon series entitled Mission Unstoppable, Lessons from Matthew's Gospel. For these five weeks, we are highlighting our 41-word mission statement, which can be found in your bulletin and on the screens behind me. First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ-centered faith family that exists to make disciples for a global impact by enjoying God through worship and prayer, by equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions and evangelism. Thus far, we've already described what it is to be Christ-centered. We have defined uh, what it is to make disciples for a global impact. Last week, we discussed enjoying God. Today, I want us to consider how we equip disciples. And next week, uh, we will conclude by speaking about how we engage the world. So today, we talk about equipping disciples through teaching and serving. As disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be engaged in ministry that makes a difference. And so this morning, I want to read for you a passage of Scripture that I believe helps to describe what it is to have a ministry that really, truly makes a difference for Christ. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. I want to read verses 31 to 46 in your hearing. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 25, I'll begin at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. This story of Jesus comes on the heels of the Savior leaving the temple complex with his disciples. The disciples marveled at the beauty of the buildings. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on the other. 
They left the Temple Mount, exited the city of Jerusalem, went up to the Mount of Olives, and there the disciples asked him, when will this take place? What follows is what's commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It represents the majority of the fifth and final teaching passage of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. It's one of the longest teaching passages of Jesus. And Jesus begins by giving some of the signs of the time. He says that you'll know that the end is coming when there are wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. You will be hated by the world. The gospel will go forth if the Lord did not shorten the days of the trial, trouble, and tribulation, then no one would be able to survive. Jesus comes to the end of chapter 24, there in verse 36, and he simply says, now regarding days and times, no one knows. No man, no angels, not even the Son of Man. Only the Father knows. It would seem to me that Jesus was more preoccupied with teaching us how to live in the meantime versus giving us a timeline for the end of time. I realize that when it comes to eschatology, the study of last things, it's kind of intriguing to look at the signs and try to discern the signs and decipher the times and try to predict when Jesus will come back. And I know that some people have their charts and their graphs, and charts and graphs are fine. But ultimately, we have to agree that when you come to this Olivet Discourse, Jesus is much more preoccupied with telling us as his followers how to live in the meantime between his first and second coming versus giving us a specific timeline for the end of time. All of chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel consists of three parables. The third parable is the one that I read in your hearing just a few moments ago. I want to contend this morning that all three of those parables are really driving home the same point. He is telling his disciples, be ready, for you do not know when the Son of Man will appear. In essence, what Jesus is telling us is he wants us to live today as if Jesus will return tomorrow. So in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, he tells the parable of the bridesmaids, the parable of the maidens. Uh, some of your translations just say the parable of the virgins. In that story, Jesus says there were ten bridesmaids, and they're, they're waiting for the groom to appear. They know that the groom is coming, but only five of the ten are prepared. Only five of them have oil for their lamp, and when the, when the groom comes... They are ready, they are prepared, and the five others who did not have oil in their lamp, they ask, will you please spare us some oil? And the ladies look at them and say, you knew this day was coming, why are you not ready? Why are you not prepared? For the Son of Man could come at any moment. You go to the second parable, it's the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And the point of that parable is that whatever God has bestowed upon you, it's not for you to store, it's for you to share. Whatever gift, whatever talent, whatever ability, whatever resource, whatever God has entrusted into your hands, you do not bury it in the ground. You do not store it away, but you share it with the lost world because you have to be ready because one day Jesus is coming. He's coming not just for you, but he's coming for all mankind. So there's coming a day when Jesus will arrive. So do not use what God has given to you to store away, but share it with the lost world. When you and I come to the third and final parable, the one that I read for you, verses 31 to 46, 
Jesus is telling his disciples, even up until the day that I come, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live every moment knowing and believing that I will return. I want you to live today as if Christ will come back tomorrow. So we come to our parable and the opening line is verse 31 where Jesus simply says, when the Son of Man appears in all of his glory, with all of his angels, he will sit on his heavenly throne with all heavenly glory. What a majestic sentence. What a beautiful picture. When the Son of Man comes, he will come in all of his glory. When the King arrives, he will come with his holy entourage. When the King comes, he will come and establish his kingdom. He will sit on his throne in all of his splendor, in all of his heavenly glory. I tell you this morning that the greatest word in that verse is the first word, when. It's not if the Son of Man comes, it's when the Son of Man comes. Listen, my friend, I know it's been 2,000 years, but I came this morning just to tell you that the King is coming. I know what the naysayers say, but the King is coming. I know what the talking heads pontificate, but the King is coming. I know that some of you have a heart that has grown faint, but the King is coming. I know that you look around and see all the sickness and all the sadness and all the setbacks, but the King is coming. I know that for some of you, you might be discouraged with the trouble and the tribulation of our day, but I came this morning to tell you that the King is coming. There's coming a day when God the Father will look to God the Son and say, go get your bride, go get the church, and Jesus will come. Gabriel will toot his own horn. He will sound the trumpet call of God. Jesus will descend with his holy entourage. Jesus will come in all splendor, in all glory, in all might, in all majesty. He will establish his kingdom both now and forevermore he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory this morning I came to tell you church that the king is coming it is not a question of if it's a question of when and when the king comes on that great glorious day all the nations will gather before him all the nations will come. They will not have any other choice but to come. All the nations that have ever existed, all the nations that currently exist, they will gather in front of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And Jesus says that on that day, the King will separate the peoples of the earth. I want you to see the picture. That on that great glorious day, all the nations will appear before him. But he will not separate nation from nation. He will not separate the good nations from the bad nations. Why? Because there really are no good nations. He will not separate nation from nation. But our God is very individualistic. So he will gather the nations and separate the peoples. Separate the peoples of that nation, the peoples of other nations, the peoples of all nations. He will come and he will separate the peoples of the earth. He will separate them like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. What a common image in the first century. Shepherds were a dime a dozen. Everybody knew a shepherd. Everybody knew the work of a shepherd. Many men used to be shepherds at one time or another. So they understood the imagery. 
that a shepherd would separate sheep from goats usually at two primary times, time of resting and time of feeding. I've been told that from a distance, sheep and goats can kind of look similar. But when you get up close, they're as different as night and day. For starters, sheep are more docile. Goats are more unruly. The coat of a sheep is valuable. The coat of a goat really doesn't amount to much. The sheep were separated from the goats. And Jesus says that in a similar way, I, the great shepherd of the sheep, I will come and I will separate all peoples of the earth. I will separate them into one of two camps, the sheep and the goats. The sheep will be on my right and the goats on my left. Now Jesus takes the image one step further. Not only does he have the imagery of a shepherd separating sheep from goats, but then he puts the sheep, the good ones, on his right side and the goats, the bad ones, on his left side. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of being on the right side of the Lord is a side of favor and blessing. And the left side is the side of shame and disgrace. In fact, even outside the Bible, in Greek and Roman court documents, they testified that the innocent party was always placed to the right of the judge. That this imagery of being on the right has nothing to do with politics, that being right or left has nothing to do with, with uh, your political persuasion, but being on the right and on the left in this context uh, means uh, being righteous or unrighteous. And Jesus, who is the righteous judge, will issue a verdict, and his verdict is always true and accurate, and he will separate people, and the righteous will be on his right, and the unrighteous, the reprobate, will be on his left. Jesus then said that the king will turn to those on his right and he will say to the sheep, come, receive your inheritance for you are blessed by my father. Receive the inheritance, the kingdom of God that's been created from the very foundation of the earth. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you came and looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. There have been some throughout the ages that have misinterpreted the words of Jesus in this parable. They've misinterpreted in this sense. They have concluded that Jesus is advocating some type of works-based salvation. That the reason that these people are on his right is because what they did for him. But I want to contend this morning that because they were on the right, this is what they did for him. It wasn't that their actions declared them to be on the right. They were on the right. And the people that are on the right, this is how they live their lives. I want to uh, try to make the argument this morning that verse 34 precedes verse 35 and 36, not just chronologically, but also theologically. I mean, chronologically, you would agree with me that 34 comes before 35 and 36. And in verse 34, Jesus just declares, you are blessed by my Father. You are favored by the Lord. You are declared righteous in God's sight. So you receive the inheritance. 
the kingdom of God, which has been prepared before the very foundation and creation of the world. And because people on his right are declared righteous, those who are declared righteous, then they demonstrate that righteousness in everyday living. So they feed the hungry, they give drink to the thirsty, they welcome the stranger, they clothe the naked, uh, they look after those that are sick and in prison, they have a help mercy ministry, and they do things because they have received righteousness from Christ, and they demonstrate that righteousness to a watching world. So you and I have said before, that good works don't save us, but we are saved to do good works. The good works that we do do not earn our salvation. The good works that we do give evidence of our salvation. It was John R. W. Stodd who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If grace offers you righteousness, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you forgiveness, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you life in Christ, by faith you accept it. The only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. So these people that are on the right of Christ, they're on the right side, the sheep, the righteous, these individuals... By their actions, they are proving their adoption. It's not that they were adopted because of their actions. No, their actions prove their adoption. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't get the works before the righteousness. We are, uh, by faith, we are declared righteous. And from faith, we demonstrate righteousness. So I tell you this morning, verse 34 precedes verses 35 and 36, not just chronologically, but also theologically. Jesus is saying the evidence that you are righteous is by your action. But that action doesn't save you. No, you are on the right because you are favored of the Father. You're on the right because you are beloved of the Lord. And you have received by faith the grace that's been offered to you. And because you received it by faith, then you demonstrate that faith in what you do. So Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, this is meaningful ministry. Meaningful ministry understands that we not only temporary, temporarily remove suffering, but we ultimately point people to the sufficiency of Jesus. It's not just that these people on the right fed the hungry. They fed the hungry in Jesus' name. It's not just that they gave a cup of cold water. They gave a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It's not only that we do good to remove suffering in the lives of other people, but we do it ultimately to point them to the sufficiency of Jesus. We don't just teach ESL on Tuesday nights, English as a second language, just to teach the language. But we do ESL in the hopes of pointing people unto Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We don't just have upward basketball just to teach the skill of the game of basketball. No, we have upward to teach it in Jesus' name, in the hopes that as you're on a team and as you're learning how to dribble and shoot and pass and score, and as you learn how to do that, that you are learning that under the direction of God-filled men and women who are telling you how to become a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're teaching the game in Jesus' name. It's one thing just to offer a service. It's another thing to offer a service unto the Savior. Because these people on the right, the righteous, the sheep, 
They were there because of declared righteousness. And then they demonstrated that righteousness. And they just didn't feed people just for the sake of feeding people. They fed them in Jesus' name. See, as a church, we don't just offer services to people. In fact, I would argue that that the world can offer services to people a lot of times even more efficiently than the church can. But the only thing the church can do that the world cannot is to point people to the sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the church can do that. So as we engage people in ministry, as we're teaching English as a second language, as we're teaching upward basketball, as we're rocking uh, babies in the nursery, as we're teaching young children, as we're engaging students in a D-Now weekend, as we're going on a short-term mission trip, we are doing these things not just to meet a physical need, but we're hoping to relieve some temporary suffering, all in the hopes of pointing people to the sole sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people on the right, by their action, they were proving their adoption into the kingdom of the Lord. Now their response is both holy and humbling. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When were you a stranger and we welcomed you in? When were you in need of clothes and we clothed you? When were you sick or in prison and we came to look after you and visit you? When did we do any of those things? And Jesus will respond to those sheep on his right, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. This is the interpretive crux of the passage, isn't it? Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. That statement is really two phrases. The first one is, the least of these. Whatever you did to the least of these. That phrase, least of these, means the insignificant, the unimportant, the marginalized, those that are shoved aside and pushed away. Those that are regarded as uh, the garbage of the trash heap. The least of these. But Jesus doesn't just tell those on the right that whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. He qualifies the least of these to include the least of these brothers of mine. So when Jesus is talking to the righteous on his right, and he's saying that you did this to the least of these brothers of mine, what does Jesus have in mind? Who does Jesus have in mind? Whenever Jesus used the term brothers, he's always talking to his disciples or about his disciples or he's referencing spiritual kin. One day Jesus was asked and told, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus said, who are my mother and who are my brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So the brothers of Jesus, the sisters of Jesus, the family of Jesus are those who are spiritually kin to Christ. They hear the word and they put it into practice. What is Jesus saying to those sheep on his right? He's saying, when you did this to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. So meaningful ministry not only alleviates uh, suffering and points people to Jesus, but meaningful ministry understands that what we do for other believers we are doing for Christ that should shape how we talk to each other and how we interact with each other and how we respond to each other 
Because in the faith family, what Jesus is saying is that what we do to each other, we're doing to Christ. What we say to each other, we're saying to Christ. When I meet the need of a brother in the Lord, I am meeting the need of Christ. When I meet the need of a sister in the Lord, I am meeting the need of Christ. When I stop and listen to a young child in the faith talk to me, I am hearing the very voice of Christ. When you and I begin to see each other this way, it, 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 it changes how we interact with each other. As a faith family, that what we do for each other, not just in this church, but to any believer, to any Christian, what we do for them and what we do to them, we, in essence, we are doing that to Christ. Now, if the positive is true, the negative would also be equally true. That when I yell at a brother in the Lord, I'm yelling at Christ. When I hold a grudge against a sister, I'm holding a grudge against Christ. When I sin against a sibling in the Lord, I am sinning against Christ. If the positive is true, the negative also has to be true. So Jesus is telling his disciples that until I return, when it comes to how we deal with each other in the faith family, what you do for another believer, you're doing for me. Boy, that changes everything, doesn't it? It changes how we see each other. You not only are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, but you, like me, your sins are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And when I see you that way, it changes how I interact with you. My heart melts, your heart melts when we see each other as siblings in the family of God. And how we treat one another, in essence, is how we treat the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaningful ministry in the context of the faith family of God, meaningful ministry understands that what we do for other believers, we do for Christ. That begs the question, what did you do this last week to meet the need of another believer? What did you do this last week to meet the need of another believer? Because as you meet the needs of other believers, you are actually meeting the needs of a representative of Christ. So this past week, what did you do? How did you arrange your schedule? What, what did you do uh, on Monday? What did you do on Thursday? How did you handle your Friday night? What, what did you do this past week in order to meet the needs of another believer? And by meeting those needs, in essence, you are meeting the needs of Christ. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Nowhere in the Bible are God's people taught to neglect those in need, regardless of whether they're in the faith or out of the faith. Nowhere are we told that we have permission to neglect the needy. All we have to do is go to a place like an Old Testament prophet Micah or New Testament letter James or listen to the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you are to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you. If you see somebody in need, you're to help them. If they need a cloak, you give it to them, whether it's your brother or not, whether it's somebody in the faith or not in the faith. So don't misunderstand what I'm telling you today, but simply I'm taking Jesus' words at face value. And in this parable, Jesus reminds his disciples that what we do for another believer, we do for Christ.
for what we do to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done to me. It's not that we have permission to neglect the lost world. It's not that we have permission to neglect the needy who are outside of the family of God. We must do good to all people. But Paul will say to the Galatians, especially the household of faith, because what we do to other believers, we are doing for Christ. Jesus then turns to the people on his left. Depart from me, you who are cursed. Go into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick, and you didn't look after me. I was in prison, and you did not come and visit me. At some level, Jesus uses the same criteria against the left, the reprobate, the goats. As he used to prove the faith of those on his right, he uses it to prove the lack of faith on those on his left. They did not have declared righteousness, so they did not demonstrate righteousness. They were not welcomed. Jesus did not say to them, come, you who are blessed by my Father. He says the opposite, depart, for you've been cursed into eternal fire. And they are to go to a place that wasn't even designed for them. It was created for the devil and his demons. But yet because they have wagged their finger at the face of God, because they wanted to be their own God, because they were so selfish and not even willing to help anybody else, they, their, their lack of willingness to help gave evidence to the lack of faith that was in their life. So Jesus says to them, depart, for you are cursed. And they respond. And they say, Jesus, when do we see you in any of those situations? Because if we had known it was you, then we would have changed our selfish schedule. If we knew that it was you, then we would have responded differently. We didn't know it was you. We just thought it was some loser. We just thought it was a, some nobody. We thought it was somebody that could be easily pushed aside and overlooked. We didn't know it was you. And had we known it was you, then we would have adjusted our schedule. And Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, meaningful ministry not only removes suffering and ultimately points people to the sufficiency of Jesus. And meaningful ministry is not only understanding that what you do for a believer, you're doing for Christ. But third and finally, meaningful ministry is a call to abandon selfishness and serve selflessly. The evidence that those on his left were not part of the redeemed is because they were so selfish. They didn't make time for Jesus in any way. And they asked the question, when did we see you, Jesus, like this? And Jesus' response in verse 45, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. You may sit there and say, well, he says to them the very same thing, yet opposite of what he said to those on his right. And I, say, I would say, no, he did not. To those on his right, 
He said, whenever you did this to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. To those on the left, he said, you did not even do it to the least of these. He does not add brothers of mine. He's saying, listen, you didn't do it to anybody. Of course, you did not, did not act favorably towards the church because you're not part of the church. But you did not even act kindly. You didn't even act benevolently to anybody. Not any of the least of these. Not any of those that are regarded as unimportant and insignificant and marginalized and shoved away. You were so selfish, Jesus says, which is evidence of your lack of faith, that you were so selfish, you did not even do it to any of the least of humanity humanity so depart you're cursed your selfishness curses you you have no one to blame but yourself you have no declared righteousness and I know that Jesus says because you have no demonstrated righteousness so depart from me verse 46 is the final verse of this story and is the final verse of the Olivet Discourse And it is both very sobering and celebratory. Sobering in the sense that Jesus said, and they will go to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. That statement is sobering and celebratory based upon your perspective to it. If you're on the left of the king, sobering depart from me you're cursed enter into an eternal fire and condemnation created for the devil and his demons I don't know about you but that's that's pretty sobering to those on his right it's a celebratory moment but you you get to enter into eternal life Because you've been favored of the Father. You've been blessed by the Lord. Receive your inheritance, the kingdom of God. And that declared righteousness, which you've received by faith, you've demonstrated from your faith in the way that you've lived your life. You live today knowing that Christ could come back tomorrow. And it's not that you're earning your salvation, but you're giving evidence of your salvation. So enter into your inheritance. Enter into the kingdom of God. For those on the right, it is celebratory. For those on the left, it is sobering. Jesus has a knack of making the complex clear. There are billions upon billions upon billions of people that have ever lived. All of them will appear before Jesus on that great last day. And Jesus says, even though there's great diversity in humanity, even though there's tremendous ethnicity in humanity, even though there are hundreds of nations within humanity, all of humanity is in either one of two groups. The the Bible uses different words to communicate the same thing. There's wheat and weeds. Children of light and children of darkness. Those on his right, those on his left. Sheep and goats, the righteous, the unrighteous, those in Christ and those out of Christ. And on that last day when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, he will issue an irrevocable verdict. 
It's a verdict that can't be appealed. Nobody can say, but wait a minute, I'm going to take it to the Supreme Court because I don't like the decision that Jesus made. No, the verdict that he gives is irrevocable. You, you can't change it. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Yeah, but I don't believe it. I don't care if you believe it or not. That's who he is. He is the king, and his verdicts are true and accurate and right. So what he declares is irrevocable. It's irreversible. You can't appeal it to any higher court. And Jesus says all people will be in either one of two camps, either on my right or on my left, sheep or goats, righteous or reprobate. Jesus is telling his disciples, um, I'm coming back. And in the meantime, between now and when I return, I want you to not only be on the right, I want you to live like you're on the right. I want you to love like you're on the right. I want you to serve like you're on the right. I want you to minister like you're on the right. I want you to give evidence to a watching world that you're on the right side, the side of favor, the side of blessing, that God's declared righteousness, the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ has been bestowed upon you. You receive it by faith. And then you demonstrate that righteousness in your everyday life. So you live today knowing that Christ could come back tomorrow. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're on the right, look like it. If you're on the right, live like it. If you're on the right, love like it. And this morning, if you could just be real honest with me and real honest with yourself and real honest with the Lord. If you're on the left because you're selfish you're, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never enabled him to be king of your life. You have not allowed his rule and his reign to rule you. Listen, today, if you're on the left, you don't have to stay there. Today is your opportunity, friend, to submit to the authority of King Jesus Today is your chance to submit it to him and say, Lord, I acknowledge I'm on the left and I don't want to stay on the left. I want to be on your right side. I want to be a recipient of your righteousness. I want, to, I, want to, I want to demonstrate that righteousness. Positionally, I want to be on your right. And in my practice, I want to demonstrate that goodness to a watching world. Lord Jesus, I want to go from the left to the right. And today, you can do that. But there's coming a day when Christ will return and when the king comes and when he separates people on his right and on his left, the verdict is irrevocable. You can do something about it today, but when that day comes, you have no appeal. So today I implore you, if you find yourself on the left of Christ, surrender unto him and he will transfer you from the unrighteous to the camp of the righteous. There's a song that we sometimes sing in the church and it simply says, uh, thank you, oh my father, for giving us your son and leaving your spirit 
till the work on earth is done. So thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. I know it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to the heavens. I know it feels like a mighty long time. The reason he tarries is because the work is not done. But when that moment comes, not a second too soon, not a second too late, when that moment comes, when the Spirit's work is done, the Father will look to the Son and Jesus will come and rescue his church. And that great glorious day of the Lord will appear and we'll know it. And he'll be the King of kings and Lord of lords and all of us will assemble before him. And whatever he declares is true, accurate, and right. So friends, I want you to be on the right side of the Lord. I want you to be there as a recipient of his grace. I want you to declare and to demonstrate that righteousness in your everyday life. And I want us to be a church of meaningful ministry. Yeah, we're removing some suffering in the hopes of pointing people to the sufficiency of Jesus. And what we do to each other as believers in Christ, we are doing unto Christ. And ultimately, our ministry is a call to abandon all selfishness and selflessly serve others. So today, I invite you to come to the King. Today, in the meantime, I want you to live and to be and to love and to serve as people on the right side of Christ. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till your work on earth is done. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, thank you for making something that can be so complex really quite clear. Father, we desire to be on the right side of Christ. So Lord, this day, for those of us on the right, help us to live like it and look like it. For those who could be honest with you and say they're on the left, Lord, today I pray you'll open up their eyes unto your salvation, that they will receive by faith your grace, and that you will transfer them from the left to the right. We ask this for your good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.